Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, thank you, Sarah. I'm very excited. Unfortunately, I can't go, but I'm still pretty excited for it. So maybe I'll just read the books on the side and, and have Hannah Baltz tell me what the conversation was about. Right. Yeah, I had this thought about this idea about this character, and I can just feed you thoughts through it. Yeah, so. Well, uh, my name's Trey. I get to be the pastor here, and I am continuing our journey through Matthew. So if you could get out your Bibles, that'd be great. If you don't have one, we can have some in the back. You can steal, or you can use your phone. Uh, I'm just going to be straight up with you. We're covering a lot of ground today, and it's great, and it's controversial, and uh, you probably will be learning things you never learned before, so very exciting. However, history, dates, things like that, it's all coming, so be excited, uh, and if you need to take a quick power nap in the middle because your brain's so tired, you know, just maybe set an alarm on your phone, more of a vibrate alarm, give you a couple minutes to doze off. <laughs> get back into it. But no, we're jumping right into chapter 24 in Matthew. Uh, we've been going through Matthew for a very long time. And um, for those of you who have been following along, you maybe know where we're at. But we're, we're in essentially Holy Week. Holy Week is the week from Palm Sunday to Easter. And that is what we call Holy Week because a lot happens in that week. In fact, over a quarter of the Gospels record just that week. So there's a lot of information there. And so we decided to take Holy Week and stretch it into about three-ish months, starting at the beginning of the year and then the whole way up to Easter. So we are, we're actually coming to the tail end of Matthew, which is really sad, but we already have our next series lined up and picked out. We're excited, and uh, it's, it's bittersweet for sure. But we're not there yet. So until then, we've got a lot of ground to cover. This chapter is unique because Jesus is like half leaving the temple, half talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And so as we talked about this week, what has happened and why we call it the storm is because this week was the Passover week. It was this high-pressure week for the Jewish people, but also the Romans, because the Romans were subjugating Jerusalem, and so they're seeing this city inflate to 15 times its size with only a certain amount of guards, so it's stressful. And then this provocateur Jesus shows up with all these broken people and poor people and just social outcasts into the city, and it's just a mess. And then there's conflict between all these different parties and and especially all the religious leaders. And so it's just a storm. It's a mess. It's high-pressured. And last week, what we covered was probably the height of Jesus's, I would call it an aggressive attack, against the religious leaders. He uses his harshest words in the entire Bible. He name-calls a little bit. And he rebukes them. We call it the seven woes. Seven rebukes, basically, of how the religious leaders have driven Jerusalem, the temple, and the, the laws into the ground. They have sucked dry any bit of internal heart of God and turned it into legalism for their own heart and pride and status. So that's where we're at. So then this is the last little journey we see of Jesus in the temple. This is his like last hurrah. Uh, I used this illustration in first service that I thought was fitting. I don't know if any of you, when you graduated high school, you had like a final walkout or whatever, like your last one. For our high school, uh, our graduation wasn't in the high school, it was in the middle school. So it really was like, our see you later, like never see you again, right? And uh, every year they would they vote on a class song, and you would like everybody would line the halls and like give you this really long goodbye, and you would walk out, and then that was like it, right? And and sometimes people were like so excited, like can't believe I you know, survived high school. Other people were like weeping, but it was always dependent on the song. Uh, my my class's song. I'm just trying to look it up. I still don't, I think it was a country song. 
So I don't know, 2012, whatever country song was a hit, was probably that. But the year before me, when I was a junior, I remember uh, the song was by Shinedown, which was sort of like grungy, sad, like, um, I forget what their main hit was, but it was that one. And so everybody's just like weeping, because it's just a sad song. But this is sort of Jesus' confliction here as he's leaving the temple. So I know I told you to go to chapter 24, but I'm going to read just the first few verses before that to sort of set the mood for chapter 24. And it starts in verse 37. He just said all those uh, harsh words to the Pharisees. He's going to leave the temple, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. You know, so just showing like Jesus' deep heart as a shepherd for his sheep. In this case, it's hens and chicks. And he says, look, your house is left to you desolate. And he's referring to the temple like it is, it is becoming abandoned, basically. For I tell you, you will not see me from now until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is basically Jesus' goodbye. Remember, he was talking to the religious leaders. Uh, the crowds are all around listening, and this is his goodbye. And as he's transitioning out of this, uh, he's like, you're not going to see me anymore. But spoiler alert, like he's foreshadowing, I'm coming back, right? And he um, goes, goes and leaves the temple. So starting in verse 1, this is our journey today. Now, as Jesus was going out of the temple courts and walking away, remember, he's using the east gate because he keeps going in and out. The east gate of the temple, uh, the east gate of Jerusalem would go like almost right into the temple. And then they were staying up on the mountain, of, the Mount of Olives and the valley and all that. And so that's where a lot of this takes place. And so he's about to leave the, the east gate. And his disciples came to him showing him the temple buildings, which is really bizarre. You're like, okay, like he clearly knows the temple, right? This guy basically lived there as a kid, right? But what they're doing is, Historians uh, tell us that there were several buildings in construction at this point. This is like 33 AD, around there, give or take a year or two. Uh, and uh, there was a, Herod was building a giant like temple for himself. And there were some other like Roman buildings and things like that being built that were just massive. And they use these giant stones like the size of a car. And it's just, it's remarkable. I mean, the temple was, was a site for anybody who came and visited. It was this massive, basically, wonder to lots of people even if you weren't Jewish. And so they're like just talking about that, and, 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 and Jesus says to them, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. So imagine, you know, uh, you like walking out of your high school to your sad song, and you turn around, and you're like, this whole building is going down, you know? You're conflicted. Maybe you had a bad experience in high school. Maybe you loved it. But this, Jesus, I mean, this is his father's house. Just a few days ago, like two days ago, or one day ago, I guess. It'd be Tuesday night. So Monday, he was in there flipping over tables. and was like, this is my father's house for prayer, and you're turning it into a, a den of robbers and thieves. I mean, he loved the temple, right, in the way that he should. He loved it because it was the connection point for the people to experience God, to grow in worship, to cultivate unity as a community, to be this chosen nation. And he is abandoning it and saying goodbye to it. And people are, like, hearing it, but they don't believe it, right? I mean, it would be like whenever you build a massive building, and you're like, yeah, it's going to fall over in a week. And they're like, no, we've been building this for 10 years. Like, there's no way. They just couldn't believe it. They couldn't fathom it. But Jesus knows. And he actually gets accused of this when he's on trial. Like, this is one of the things they accuse him of, is he's talking about destroying the temple, which is a massive, you know, anarchy, zealot attempt, right? So, for, and for Rome, because Rome knew there was a lot going on around the temple. So he, he, he uses this continually, and he talks about like his own temple, right, destroying in three days and being raised again. So there's this tension we see as Jesus is 
he's slowly starting to raise this provocative idea as him as the temple. And to the common Jew, and especially the disciples, there's just a lot of confusion. Like, what do you mean? You're not, like, this is the temple. This is how we meet God. And we know nowadays, we know the spoiler alert of Jesus being the true temple now for us, right? He's the temple, and God is able to be in our hearts, not just in the Holy of Holies, that we can access God through the Holy Spirit. So he, he, he knows this, and he's getting to it, and he's drawing people into it. But what's going to happen in this passage is, is really, uh, and why it's so controversial, is because this whole chapter is very symbolic. There's some literal, there's some symbolic, there's some Old Testament stuff, there's timings involved, there's a lot of like timing words. And what is going to happen is this, this passage, scholars would argue, talks about either one or both uh, of these events. The first one is the destruction of the temple, which happens in 70 AD. Right now, Jesus is talking, like I said, like 33 AD, 70 AD. And then the end times, or we call it like the, you know, the second coming of Christ. The Greek word would be the parousa. That's like the term for it. Uh, the end of the world, right? And we have all these ideas. Most of them, we were, if we do, we're taught when we were five on a flannel graph. And there's like clouds, and God's like above the clouds. And you're like, we're all just going to sort of just go into elevate mode. And we all just like float up into the, into the sky, right? We think heaven is, even though we know we can't stand on clouds, it's still somewhere up there, right? It's not down here. It's definitely not in the ground, right? That's where hell is. It's hot, right? Magma, right? But, but it, it, it feels like, that, that's like, oh, that's still kind of how I think about it a little bit, though. Like when I think about heaven, I kind of think clouds and like Santa Claus God. Like that's what I think about, right? Beard on a throne, right? This is going to to mess with some of the thinking that we've had. This is actually considered what we call an apocalyptic text in some ways, just this chapter. And apocalypse, you typically think zombies, right? Or like end times, like things are not good, bomb shelter, canned goods. Like that's what you think of, right? But apocalypse, unfortunately, it, the word just means uncovering, right? So if you have a fancy dinner and you've ever, done, you've ever seen this happen where they have like the metal tin over your, your filet, right? And they come to your table and they're like, boom, that's an apocalypse, not what you thought, right? Not zombies in your fillet, right? It's just, it's uncovering what is to be seen. And apocalypse a lot of times has connotations of future events, but in this case, and then Jesus is going to quote Daniel, which is another part of Daniel's apocalyptic, it's, it, we, we can't freak out and think zombies, or we can't freak out and think uh, in certain ways that we've probably assumed. So I just ask you to take this with open mind here, because answering is it about the destruction of the temple, or is it about the end times, I would say the answer is yes. It is both, and there's different parts that you'll see. And we're going to go through this, and you're going to start to see how we get to this point. And so what's going to happen in verse 3? This sets the stage for it. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, you know, they're probably overlooking, you know, and they're like, I can't believe you said that's all going to be gone, you know. And they ask him, come to him privately, so all the people are gone. Tell us, they're going to ask two questions. When will these things happen? When will all of this be destroyed, right? They're asking, when will the temple be destroyed, all the buildings, all that? And then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's kind of two questions here. If you have your Bibles and you want to mark in them or you're taking notes, the first question, I'm just going to tell you right now, is going to be answered from verse 4 to verse 35. So at the end of 35, you want to put a little mark. That's the answer to question 1. The answer to question 2 is verse 36 to chapter 25, verse 46. So it's a lot. We're not going to cover all that today. Don't worry. That's going to be like split up through different weeks. But we'll cover all of the first question, part of the second. I'll kind of give you the second question's answer without all the parables. And then the next three weeks, we'll go through all the parables. But Jesus is going to answer sort of both questions, which is great because sometimes he's cryptic and he doesn't. 
Here he's actually going to answer them. So we're gonna, I'm going to read through this whole thing. I'm going to read through verse 4 through 35. And I just want you to just sort of listen, read along. There's going to be a lot of just confusing things. But we're going to take this whole chunk together, and then we'll parse through some pieces. So and we're starting in verse 4. We're going to read through 35. Are we ready? Are we good to go? You gotta, we're not going to have it on the screen, so hopefully you have it in front of you. Jesus answered them, answering their question, Watch out that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Make sure that you are not alarmed, for this must happen. But the end is still to come, meaning this is not yet, this is before that. For nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Your translation might say natural disasters, but, you know, famines and earthquakes... All of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Not even birth pains. It's the, it's the beginning, the start. Okay, So this is like the, not even the end yet, the start. Then the next passage. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and will kill you. You will be hated by all the nations because of my name. Then many will be led into sin. They will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many will grow cold. But the person who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole inhabited earth as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end, and then the end will come, right? So when you see the abomination of desolation, your translation might say like corrupted pollution, destructive pollution, something like that. It's a very intense phrase. Spoken about by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. We'll just pause real quick because you're like, why is that there? <laughs> Did the editor forget to take that out when they like were putting this in the Bible? This is the weirdest thing, but Matthew's literally put that note. He's like, whoever's listening, first century Jew, go back and read Daniel because it's going to apply. It's kind of crazy. It's the only time we see this, but it's, it's in there and it's written in, this, in, this, in the manuscripts. So uh, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the roof must not come down to take anything out of his house. The one in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days. Pray that your fight may not be in winter, flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath, for then there will be great suffering, unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the world until now or will ever happen. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, or those are the saved people. Remember, I've told you ahead of time. So then do, if someone says, look, here he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or look, here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe him. For like this, just like the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And then immediately, immediately after this, the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will, will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with glory and great power, or great, or sorry, power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth, or heaven to the other. Lastly, learn this parable then from the fig tree. Whenever its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also you, when you see all these things, know that he is near, right at the door. You ready? Here's the answer, 34 verses later, 34 verses later. 
I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. It's an interesting way to end it. Heaven and, heaven and earth will pass away. Interesting, right? Heaven, heaven doesn't pass away, right? Or has heaven become something different than what we thought it would be, right, before that? So let's get into this. I'm going to give you the answer right away to the question, and then we're going to get to how, the, how that's actually the answer. Uh, he says, before a generation passes away. So in this time, what's a generation? How many years? Let's see, what's a good biblical number that you can think of? 40. There it is. Easy answer, right? 40. When is the temple destroyed? 37 years after this. So within 40 years, the temple of Jerusalem is destroyed. The, the presence of God to these people can no longer be uh, uh, maintained in the Holy of Holies because they don't have control, and the temple is absolutely destroyed. In fact, when the Romans destroy the temple in 70 AD, they literally get wedges and tools and all this stuff, and they just purposely just remove every stone. There's, there's no, like, the only thing that's left even today is like substructures of the outsides. There's like the entire temple is just gone, the, the inner area. They destroyed everything. Everything is gone. So you're going to ask, well, how are you getting to that? How, it seemed like there was a lot of end time stuff, but then there's also stuff that seems very relevant to Jesus' time in what will be the 70 AD. So we're going to get into that, and I'm going to just try to show you what Jesus is getting at here. So in the first section, verse 4 through 8, this one I think is probably the most timely for us, because you have to remember this is not written specifically to our time. It is written to a time of people that then we take and we understand the context and then we internalize that for the life we live today. But this one's pretty easy for me, I think, because I don't know about you, but have you in the last 20 years been freaking out about political turmoil or things that will end the world? You know, you're like, if so-and-so gets elected, like, it's the end of the world. Like, you know, and, and I just, I can't, I can't, I'm afraid. I can't bear it, right? We live in fear. And Jesus is literally like, hey, guys, in the next 37 years, Okay? There's going to be all this different political turmoil. There's going to be wars. There's going to be earthquakes and famines. There's going to be all this stuff that happens in a broken world. You just got to chill. And don't believe what everyone's saying. There's going to be a bunch of fake messiahs who are going to come, and they're going to do these little magic tricks, and you're going to be like, wow, maybe this is the messiah. Maybe Jesus wasn't because he died, and I don't know if he really resurrected. If he did, it's, you know. He's like, just, just remain calm and do not let fear motivate you to make rash decisions about what's going on. And if you think about this, if you ever like, studied history deeply, you might think, man, the last 100 years have probably been like the worst years of, 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 the unit, like, of just time, right? There's been so many wars and just like racism and like all these different, you know, there's still poverty and all this. But then you read like 1,500 years ago and you're like, oh, wow, it was really terrible then too. And there were terrible people doing terrible things literally the whole time. Like, we have, like there isn't a day that goes by when somewhere in the world someone is not being taken advantage of. Rulers aren't corrupt. We're not at some form of war, right? And so we, we look at the next, uh, from 33 AD to 70 AD, here's, here's all this stuff happens. There's a bunch of false messiahs. These are recorded historically. Uh, there was a Samaritan who gathered a decent following. Thudius, who I, I'm not sure his origins, but he gathered a decent following. The sons of Judas of Galilee. There was an Egyptian. There was even some Jewish people. And most of these had a decent, decent following. A couple hundred people, up to a couple thousand people who were like, this is the next prophet, or maybe this is the Messiah, right? And, and people started to subscribe to their way of life and their kind of cultish um, things. And Jesus is like, don't worry, don't worry about them. 
Then there were wars. I mean, there was wars right after Jesus said this. Three years later, the Parthians were against Rome. There was a more local war where Antipas, Herod Antipas, got in war with the Nabataean king, which is like two regions. They got in war. And then Rome itself got in a war because remember, Rome was, was spreading itself so thin. They were constantly in wars. And what's crazy is during the siege of Jerusalem, which was five months until 70 AD when they won, they actually started the war far earlier, two years before that. But in the middle of them uh, trying to fight Jerusalem, uh, they had internal war. And they had what the year, the historical year is called the year of the four emperors, which you already know probably wasn't a good thing. There was four emperors in a year. And so there was a lot of internal battle, and then they figured that all out. And they're like, all right, now let's crush Jerusalem. And they went back to it. So there was all these wars. There was, indeed, earthquakes and famines. In Asia Minor, in 61 AD, there were some massive ones. In Italy, 62 AD. In Jerusalem, 67 AD, like during in between the war, there was massive earthquakes. There was a widespread famine that was known and recorded in the book of Acts in AD 46. So all of these things have happened in the next 30 years, and it's very clear. Now, these things still happen today. Uh, when our group of guys was in Guatemala, we got to be a part of volcanoes, which was pretty cool, pretty cool experience. There's 22 active volcanoes in Guatemala, and when we went on our last day to Antigua before we went to, the, to fly out in the city, you drive around one, and we got to see it like erupt during the day, which was really cool. And then we got to see it erupt at night, which was, I think, even cooler. You just saw this like red line like in the sky. It was so cool. Um, fortunately, it, you know, doesn't, it's, it doesn't like erupt miles and miles in like shoot flying magma in the air, but really cool. But there, there's this stuff just happens, right? We live in a world with tectonic plates and earthquakes and hurricanes. And even in Columbus, a tornado can try to touch down every once in a while, right? And you've got to sit in your basement for 20 minutes. Like, these things are real today. So the end of the day, Jesus is saying, hey, things are going to happen. The world's going to feel like it's out of control. Just calm down. I am in control, right? I am the one who's in charge of the powers and the principalities of this. Like, I will win, Right? The next section then deals directly with, because the next word ties it together, then you will be persecuted. And so a lot of people take this passage, and we, we, we use this a lot of times as, as us now, as, well, we're, you know, we're gearing up for the end times, and we're going to be persecuted. But I would argue that all of those disciples were persecuted. In fact, all of them were killed except for one. John was exiled to an island, which is social killing. <laughs> like, if you're an extrovert, like, good luck on that one. Go be... Go to the northern part of Canada and never come back. You would be like, you might as well just kill me. Kill me here now before i got to buy the parka to live up there, right? And that's, that's, I mean, they were all persecuted, beat, tortured, right? All of them. And he's like, and, and some of my followers and these lukewarm people, they won't, they won't survive it. They won't want to deal with it. They'll run away, right? Now, the most difficult passage or uh, phrase in this passage that makes us think end times is the phrase inhabited world. Your translation might say something a little bit different, but the Greek phrase is hey okio namene, which uh, I'm botching in Greek, but um, it's used two other times in the Bible, and it's always referring to the Mediterranean and lesser known areas in the east. It's not referring to the whole world. Now, I know you're like, well, you know, the whole world is the whole world. We know that now because we have a globe, or if you think it's flat, you have a map, right? But uh, that's another conversation. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but they, they, they're referring to just the world as they know it, right, this area. And so we use this verse a lot of times. We need to get the gospel to every corner of the world, the inhabited world, and then Jesus can come. I would argue it's not really talking about that. It's talking more about the, the world of this area that they knew it was to be a gospel, gospelized world. 
And, and in the next 30 years, that's the book of Acts, is like them just doing that, spreading it to where Paul eventually gets to the Rome, the capital, probably is killed for sharing his faith there. Right? We don't really know the end, but, uh, you know, so there's, there's all that. The other two times it's used, that phrase is in Acts 11 when it's describing the extent of the famine in the whole area that I mentioned, or in Acts 19, which is the distance of how far people would come to worship Artemis. Artemis was the god in Ephesus. Now you're like, that's okay, why does that matter? Well, we don't have any recordings of any Native Americans from North America somehow getting over and worshiping Artemis. So to assume inhabited a world seems a little bit overarching because Unless they had planes or canoes that would go really, really far over the Atlantic Ocean, there was none of them a part of Artemis worship, right? So the, the phrase and the, the idea, the spirit of it is in this, the Mediterranean and that in the area of the Middle, Middle Eastern area. So that's so, so he's kind of getting at this idea, you'll be persecuted wherever you go. Whether you go to Rome, whether you go to uh, all these different churches that are started, right, you'll experience that. And the next one is the abomination of desolation. This one is confusing, <laughs> And it is dealing with the apocalyptic part of Daniel. Maybe you've read Daniel. Maybe you've heard stories of Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel are the hits. You know, Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Right? Daniel uh, um, eating the Daniel fast. Right? And then you read chapter 7. And you're like, what is going on? This is not the same book. And then all of a sudden, I had this dream, this vision. And there was all, you know, and there's crazy stuff, right? The second half of Daniel is, is, is considered apocalyptic. It is just uncovering all these future prophetic events. And so Matthew, Jesus, is quoting, and he's saying, read Daniel. And what he's getting at here in this phrase, abomination of desolation, he's saying it will occur basically in the temple on the altar. And so what, what, what we often do is we say, oh, that's end times. It's this, like, super bad antichrist, Right? But what I think is way, way more timely for the destruction of the temple is that when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and then they destroyed the temple, they didn't destroy all of Jerusalem, most of it, destroyed the temple, what do they do? They take their own sacrifices and they offer them on the altar in the Holy of Holies of Yahweh. It's like the most degrading thing that I could think of <laughs> to God, Right? It's them saying, hey, your God was weak, we won. So, like, we're going to worship our God here now on this altar in this Holy of Holies. There is, I mean, you can't really think of anything worse. What is more of an abomination of desolation or pollution than having pagan gods, which is number one commandment, right? Don't worship other gods. And then to do it in the Holy of Holies, where men had been killed for not being ritually clean. To do that is, like, the most utmost slander. Now, you think about that, and you're like, oh, okay, like, yeah, that'd be pretty bad, right? But if we think about the other worst time in the Old Testament, it was very similar. The worst moment, I would say, in the Old Testament, if you really read it well, is a very interesting time when uh, a, a guy and a girl are caught doing the dirty in the temple. And they're just like basically making fun of like, the, the consecration of the temple. And then all of a sudden, Phineas comes up. There's like a couple different Phineases, but good Phineas comes up and just spears them both, like through both of them, and then he like brings them out and everybody like sees it. It's this crazy event. And you're like, how did I not read this story? It's there, I promise. But that was like the low. Like let's have sex in the temple because all these Canaanite gods do that, right? Sex is an act of worship to these deities in the temple, right? All these different super polluted sexual things. And so that is like the lowest of the low. And then you have this, I think it is the lowest of the low. And this is the abomination of desolation that is, that is referring to like, the temple is gone, it is destroyed, it is no longer. Now, fortunately, the siege lasts five months. So a lot of people died. The siege is tough. You can't get water, food, and you're just kind of trapped. It's brutal. 
It's like a terrible way to go. But not everybody dies. Some survive. Some flee to the hills, like it's said. There'll be some who have false promises in the moment of weakness, like you haven't eaten in five days, and you're like, well, let's go over here, and we're going to jump the wall, and we're going to make it. And you're like, you know, and you start to listen because you're desperate, right? There's going to be people trying to manipulate the situation. And I've even said this before, but some of the religious leaders that Jesus was talking to and rebuking are going to be gladiators in Rome once this temple falls. They come in and they, they take tons of captives, a lot of the religious leaders because they're high class, and they put them like, imagine like you, Jesus rebuking you. Also in 35 years to 37 years, you're going to be a gladiator and die in a ring in Rome. Like that would blow your mind, right? Can you imagine that? So that there's, there's this just brutal siege and thankfully it ends saving some and them just fleeing, like just getting out of there. And then we have in verse 27, this weird, and this is the best, I mean, this is the best way I can interpret it. It's like a commercial. And what it's doing is, this is, I think, about the second coming, I would argue it is, which is not the end of the, the destruction of the temple, but it's about the second coming. And all it really is is elevating the, more, the, the greater weight of the second coming over what is occurring. Because he's saying, this is what's going to occur over the next 40 years, but it is nothing compared to the second coming. And it looks like he basically just takes this pause, and he's using an illustration about lightning, and the entire earth will know when I'm back. Whereas this, this incident, this temple incident, was not known over the entire world. It was massive in the inhabited world of that area. And so it takes this little commercial kind of just comparing, like, but don't worry, because he's trying to also answer part of question two. And so he gives them this little piece here that he'll come back to. But the reason why I say it's a commercial and not a continuation is because then in verse 29... It literally says immediately after. So we're talking about all the destruction of the temple, and then immediately after that, right? So it's all very much combined. Matthew doesn't use that phrase very often unless he really means it. So immediately after, then this is what happens. And this is by far the most controversial passage because this one at face value, it's called the arrival of the Son of Man. You're like, that sounds like the end times. That sounds like the second coming when Jesus comes back. And you read it, and, and a traditional interpretation would say that it is that. But what's really confusing is why would it say all that and then a verse and a half later it says, and all of this will happen in the next 40 years or the next the generation. Unless you thought generation just meant people and people will eventually see this. But I don't know. I, I'm not buying it. Some people do. I think they're wrong, but that's okay, right? That's why there's a lot of different churches. But the, the, this, this, this time period is, I think, actually not talking about the second coming. I think it's actually deeply and richly steeped in Old Testament prophecy, and I can tell you that because we're going we're gonna to talk about all of these. Everything that he says in verse 29 to 31 is basically an Old Testament prophecy quoted almost exact. So when he talks about like the sun darkening and the moon losing its light and the stars falling, okay, uh, it doesn't, he's not talking literally. He's actually quoting Isaiah 13.10. I, I don't have time to turn there, but if you want to mark it, you can look at it read it later, and you can, make your, you can read the whole chapter and what you'll realize is what he's talking to, I'm giving you the answer, is Isaiah's prophesying about the fall of Babylon. Okay? And you're like, all right, you're really getting in here, Trey, so hang in here for a second. Okay, I promise it'll, it'll make sense. Babylon was not only a real place, it was a massive, just pagan city, like just, I, I hate to say this, I describe it as the Las Vegas, like that's the best way to think about it, right? But Babylon was also a symbol of a terrible city or area. So the same way as you could say, oh, I went to Vegas and I partied, right? I went to this city. But you could also say, wow, you guys had a crazy party. It was like Vegas, right? But you weren't in Vegas. You were in your dorm room and you were doing a lot of bad things, right? Both of those are Vegas, but they have different meanings. Uh, Isaiah here is actually prophesying about the fall of literal Babylon. But Babylon, like I said, has deep implications on what it means. 
And he's prophesying about it, and all this will happen. The sun will darken, the moon will, the stars will fall. Now, we knew that this happens a couple years later after Isaiah. I don't know about you, the moon's still there, the sun's still there, the stars have not fallen. Literally, right? But that event happened. So clearly it's a symbol and a symbolic understanding of the darkness surrounding Babylon that will change the tide, destroys it, and something else comes of it, right? And so what Jesus is doing here, it's really sad, is he's basically saying Jerusalem has become Babylon. Jerusalem, which was the, the, the city set on a hill as a light to the world, is the worst city that you can be in right now. And not only that, but, you know, the temple's going to be gone. It'll be abandoned. And it's actually a good thing. It's sad. Jesus is like, woe to this. I'm sad. I'm crying. I'm emotional about this. But I know what's coming, the true temple, and it will be far better and far greater than anything you can imagine. But in this moment, he's quoting these scriptures that these people would know and understand, and they'd be very confused. The disciples would be like, wait, but we're not Babylon, right? But no, you are, because you've taken the beauty of God's law, and you've sucked all the life out of it, and you've created a life and culture centered around greed and money and status, and you're keeping out the very people that God wants to welcome in with open arms. You have become Babylon. You have taken religious ideas and sucked them into a pagan understanding of how to live in, in the world, and I'm done with it. And so the acts of God's judgment occur. There's, there's another passage that he's quoting in Isaiah 34, which is sort of the same thing. It's not about Babylon, but it's about another city. It's similar verbiage, and it's this idea of cosmic collapse. And so... We're left with this tension, right? Because we're, remember, if we pause here, we're like, what is the question Jesus is trying to answer? <laughs> What's the first one? When will all of this destruction of the temple happen? And, and he's, he's sort of getting there, right? He's like, well, this will happen, and then this, and then this, right? He's, he's building, and he's getting to the point where this is where it will be. And he's using this Old Testament prophetic imagery to help us understand that this isn't just a building being destroyed, but it is the way at which the Israelites were called to be in communion with God will be gone and done with, and something much greater is coming. And Jesus alludes to this very subtly as we start to, as we start to journey through his ministry. He talks about himself being the temple. He talks about other people um, like idolizing the temple and ruining it for its purpose. So we kind of know he's going here, but the disciples are just like, what is happening? So then we know all this will take, will take place. We live in a world where Jesus is our temple in our hearts, right? It's, so he has fulfilled that. But then if you read verses 30 and 31 with that idea in mind, you start to see the ideas of where he's getting at. Verses 30 and 31 are several language pieces used in the Old Testament that deal with mourning, right? And they're mourning for the, the, the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the temple, right? Like that, if you're a Jew in another city and you hear about the temple being destroyed, I mean, you are just devastated. No more Passover, no more festivals, no more writing your sin in the way God wants it. I mean, it's, 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 it's sending you to hell. I mean, it is devastating to a Jewish person because you're like, is God really real? Is this, you know, that was the way that they absorbed worship through him. So then it gets to this language, right, where Jesus is coming into heaven. And that's where a lot of times, like I said, that's the end times idea that we think, well, it's Jesus coming and, and we all just float up into the heaven and he just takes us all. But here's, here's what I'll ask you is, what is your understanding of heaven and where is Jesus 70 A.D.? So where is Jesus? Jesus is 70 A.D. is at the right hand of the Father on his throne. Where is Jesus now? Right hand of the Father on the throne, right? Now, I know we know like Jesus is in our hearts through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That is very true, yes, right? But then that means that heaven, and he says heaven and earth will pass away. What is he getting at? Heaven, we often think is this physical place. 
And in the long term, we know through Revelation that God is renewing and will create a new heaven that will look a lot like earth, right? But it'll be a new heaven where we will dwell and live and work with him forever, for eternity. But heaven, even right now, is here. Heaven is God's presence and dwelling place. Where is God's presence and dwelling place? What we believe today, in your heart, in your soul, right? When you accept Jesus, you hear that phrase, into your heart. What we're really getting at is that you are allowing Jesus into your deepest desires and affections and heart, and you're letting him live and dwell through the Spirit's power in your life and helping you, enabling you to be more like him. That's what we believe. Heaven is in each of our hearts. When we say, in heaven, right, in Grandview, as it is in heaven, that's Jesus' prayer, that we get to have heaven opportunities through the Spirit in the world that we live in. And so Jesus, when he's saying this, is I'm, uh, the temple will be gone, I will be the new temple, and my heaven will be literally within you. That I will gather up all the people who claim my name, and they will be a community of believers with a temple that can move all around because it's within your heart and your soul. And he talks about this idea of gathering, and, and all of these gatherings are never referring to an end times in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 30, it speaks of a gathering that were people, from people that were scattered from the ends of heaven and the ends of earth. So it's the same imagery. Zechariah 2.10, where God says to his scattered people that I will gather you from the four winds of heaven. That's the exact same phrasing he uses. And Zechariah is not referring to the end times. And then the last one is the trumpet blast, which is what gets us, right? We're like, how do we know it's the end times? We'll hear a trumpet. I don't know where. It'll be like a tornado alarm, you know, when it goes off every Wednesday at 12. That'll be it. And then when people just start floating to the sky or like left behind, right, you'll be driving or you'll be sitting in a passenger seat and your driver's just gone. And all of a sudden all these cars are just swerving and everything because they're just taking them all up, right? Except they're leaving their necklace, their cross necklace, right? That's what I find it. Just so you knew where they went, there was always the necklace left there just so you could be, you know, just neatly stacked on the pillow while they were sleeping, um, which is funny because you think that would, of all things, we get to go. It's the cross necklace. But, but that's what we think of. But a great trumpet blast echoes uh, another regathering prophecy in Isaiah 27, 13. The same exact idea, not dealing with the end times. Now, you can take all those and say, no, those could all be end times prophecies. That's fine. I don't agree with that. Uh, the scholars that I, I follow wouldn't agree with that. But like I said, we're welcome to different opinions here. But that's, that's just where I would see that. So then he sums up all of this with his answer. Here is when all this will take place. It will take place within your generation, your people. And that's why he uses the, the fig analogy. And he says in verse 34, it'll all be finished within this generation. And then verse 35 is, you can rely on this. So that's the answer to the first question. How are we doing? Good. Good? Okay. We're going to answer the second one very quickly, and I'm not going to go through all of it. Don't worry. It will not take near as long. But the second question is, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the end? This is the end times that we know. Like The second coming is when, when God makes all things right, right? We know this uh, as, as the, the second coming or, or the end times. And like I said, he's going to cover this in the next three parables. And what, what I'm just going to give you his answer right now. His answer is, I don't know, and you don't need to know. <laughs> That's Jesus' answer. Literally, he says in verse 36, as for that day, no one knows it, not even the angels, except the Father alone. It's not up to Jesus. It, Jesus has deferred that authority to the Father. And when Jesus is like, all right, get in there, Jesus will go, right? So he's saying it's not about knowing the time, which how many of you know people that have just obsessed about the time? Well, the Mayan calendar, well, the stars are going to be aligned. There's an asteroid coming. The, the ground is getting significantly more terrible, right? Like, you know, you have the giant waste cloud in the, or in the trash in the ocean is getting larger, right? Like, all these things, and we just, like, speculate, this is when the world will end. 
And he's just like, stop it. Now, it doesn't mean we don't care about the environment. It doesn't mean we don't like, live diligently. But if you're spending all your time trying to predict it, you're just going to waste your time. And he tells you this by giving you this little illustration here. Um, as he talks about uh, in verse 39, and they knew nothing until the flood came and took them away. It will be the same way of the coming of the man. There will be son of man. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women grinding grain with a mill. One taken, one left. Right. That's where, the, like I said, the left behind idea of like people getting taken. Right. And he says, therefore, then here's his response, and this is going to be his response for the next forty verses in several weeks. Right. Is just stay alert. Stay alert. And he says, because you don't know what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if an owner of the house had known what day and time of the night the thief was to come, he would have been alert, and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. If we believe this to be an end times, which I think it is, he's telling disciples this, but, he, but it's also applying to us. Like We are to be ready at any point for this. Now, what is our posture towards this? This is the last little parable, and this is when we'll close is the faithful and wise servant. Who then is, is the faithful and wise slave or servant, whom the master has put in his charge of the household to give other slaves food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom the master finds at work when he comes. I tell you the truth, the master will put him in charge of all his possessions. There's like a blessing that's given to this servant for being faithful to what he was supposed to do while the master was gone. But if that evil slave should say to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves to eat and to drink with drunkards, then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not foresee, and will cut him in two. I don't know if it's long ways or horizontal, but cut him in two. And what will he do? He throws him with the religious leaders. He throws him in a place with the hypocrites. The hypocrites are the religious leaders. The people who, who just were religious but didn't get it. And there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is like sort of a hell analogy, right? So what's, what's, what's fearful here for us as we read this is like, Jesus is taking this serious. Don't doze off. Don't be lazy. Now, it doesn't mean you go to every person you meet and the first thing you say, have you heard of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? You don't got to be like overly intense, but he's saying, are you being intentional about the life and mindset that you have right now? And so as I invite up the band, I want us to just, we're going to take during this song a little bit of time of reflection. I just want you to process that. That's, I think, the goal of this passage for us today, other than just learning about the history of this, is are we really stewarding our lives, resource, intellect, margin to glorify and make disciples? I mean, that's our goal. R.T. France, who's a scholar that we use a lot, uh, he wrote this just simply he's about this, this little parable. He says, the readiness of the good slave consists not in sitting by the window waiting for his master, but in getting on with the job that he has been given. Getting on with the job that he's been given. All of you have been given a job. You've given a vocational job, a ministerial job. All those blend together sometimes, right? But if you're just lazy or you're waiting for the future, I think a really common idea is retirement, right? Whether we're American, we retire, right? That's what we do. We work hard and then we retire. But it's silly because no one I've ever heard is like, man, I can't wait till I can retire and play golf every day. Um, but I'm also going to have like crippling arthritis. And I'm not going to be able to swing a club, but it's going to be great, right? Nobody says that. Nobody's like, I can't wait till I retire at 60. Well, actually, I'm probably going to die at 45. So I don't know. I'm, I'm looking forward to retirement. Probably won't happen. Nobody thinks like that. Everybody's optimistic. Oh, I'm going to have this house in Florida. And then I'm going to golf this many times. And I'm going to have this many grandkids, right? You have all of this planned out. I'm going to work at Lowe's for fun because I'll be bored, right? Like you have all these things, but they're silly. They're silly. You don't control anything. You don't control tomorrow. You don't control your next breath that we sang about. It's a gift right? Like you don't. 
And so even if you have a, a righteous 10-year plan, Trey, I want in 10 years, I want to start this ministry. I want to do this really good thing. God's calling me to it in 10 years. And, but I'm going to grind, and I'm going to accumulate money, and I'm going to work 70 hours a week, and I'm going to forsake my family. But then in 10 years, I'll be able to do that ministry, and I'll be a good dad. What happens if in four years you're such a bad dad that your family leaves you? What happens if in six years you die? What happens if in eight years Jesus does come back, which we don't really live like he is, but what if he does? What if in eight years, because you grinded so much that you put all your identity in job and greed and that thing never happens? What if you do that same thing and you walk away from Jesus because you're consumed in your greed? We have to stay alert. We have to avoid the things like the drunkards, the culture that we place ourselves in that, that, that veers us off course. And we just, we just stay in it for the long haul. So I want to encourage you as we sing this song, we'll have a time of formation. Bread and cup is here as a reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus. Giving is an act of worship and glorification of God. There's people in the back who want to pray for you. But the reflection is just, is there something, this stirring that I've had, that I'm waiting on, I'm being... I'm waiting, I'm being lazy, I'm putting it off because I'm just fearful of like what I need to do now to be present and to stay alert. I just encourage you to think through that. And if at any point you want to stand and sing, that's great. You don't have to, but we're going to sing one last song together and then we'll close it out. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.